It's Tuesday, June 20th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have been, as I'm sure you have been paying close attention to the submersible, which, as of you hearing this, might have only a few more hours of air left, unless it can be recovered, which does not seem likely. One of the constant critiques and complaints that I'm seeing on social media about coverage of this story is that what about the recent story of migrants' boats capsizing? And if you said, wait, which recent story of migrants' boats capsizing? You've put your finger on one of the reasons why we're paying more attention to the submersible. There are many valences that attract our attention, but in general, magnitude of death isn't a big one. Sometimes it is, but often it's pictures or relatability or novelty, uniqueness, strange details, our ability to project ourselves into a situation. The thinking goes, when you talk about migrants and their boats capsizing and dozens to hundreds of migrants dying versus five people on a submersible, the Inclination is to say something vaguely like, you know, if we were really good people, we would care more about those migrants' deaths because they're more vulnerable and just more of them. Of course, that supposes that we're not such good people that we'd be doing enough that there wouldn't be these migrants' deaths. I, in my coverage, often note that we pay attention to things that are but a fraction of the overall problem and usually uh, a unique fraction or an unrepresentative fraction. I talk about this with shootings all the time. Mass slaughters in public places by a stranger, well, that is less than 1% of all gun homicides, but we pay attention to it, I think, more than the usual gun homicide. Now, when I talk about that, I never say, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with you people? It's actually because the idea of randomly getting killed in a public place is much more relatable to the average person, the average person who doesn't live in one of the 1% of census tracts that accounts for 25% of the murder, for instance, right? We say it could happen to me and therefore it becomes news and it becomes the issue the way we define the issue. That's when I talk about it. That's what I want to put my finger on. What is the issue of gun violence? It's really not mass slaughters. It's the routine killings mostly of black men and by black men. I try not to turn it into a j'accuse, more of a j'acknowledge. Anyway, submersible itself, that kind of gets at the problem too. I'd rather book a trip on a re-immersible, an ascentable, right? A surfaceable, a serviceable, submersible should be a serviceable, and this one was not. And you're curious why. You're curious what went wrong. Of course you are. That curiosity will drive coverage. The public wants to know the answers to those questions. As far as the question, why does an overloaded boat with hundreds of people that can only safely accommodate dozens of people, why does that sink? Do you want answers? I mean, it's sad, it's a tragedy, but the answer to that question is right there. It's horribly overloaded. And what caused that? The need to migrate, which also we know. It doesn't make us less sensitive. Like, we actually know these answers. We're not searching out for answers to this question. In what form does a searching of answers take? It sometimes literally takes the form of a Google search. It's why media exists to some extent to provide answers to slake our curiosity, and that will drive coverage. There is a difference between what is interesting and what is moral. 
If the news was a constant drumbeat of the most moral things to care about, the news would never be about Americans. It would always be about Uyghurs, the Yemenis, maybe the Ukrainians would break in from time to time, a brief visit to Sudan once in a while, but then pull back out to your regular coverage of the Uyghurs unless the war of the Democratic Republic of Congo wages again. And you know what we'd never have coverage of? Hunter Biden. Which brings me to one point about this settlement of the Hunter Biden case, pled guilty to two misdemeanor tax cases, and will plead guilty but avoid jail terms on the charge that he applied for a gun without disclosing that he was an addict. U.S. Attorney David Weiss, the prosecutor, was a holdover from the Trump administration. He was a Trump appointee. This is an incredibly important point and an incredibly effective rebuttal. You read Donald Trump Jr., which I did. The blatantly politicized nature of Joe Biden's Justice Department under A.G. Garland couldn't be more clear today. The plea deal that they cut with Hunter Biden reeks of favoritism and brazenly reveals a system, blah, 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 blah. No acknowledgement. It was your dad's prosecutor. They kept the Trump prosecutor. It is good that they kept the Trump prosecutor. It was the ethical thing to do and... Once justice was delivered, it's so much easier to say this was actual justice. Now, will Trump Jr. accept it? Will Trump Sr. accept it? Will the people who read their statements on Truth Social accept it? No. You know, there's this temptation to argue that we societally are so fractured and so siloed that a great rebuttal, he was a Trump prosecutor, that that doesn't matter. I mean, who cares if you're really a socialist or not a socialist? They're going to call us socialists anyway, went the debate at literally a Democratic debate last year. But it does matter. The great rebuttal does matter. I just can't really prove it. But let's say David Weiss were dismissed and a Joe Biden appointee took over the investigation and those were the charges agreed to. How would Truth Social, Donald Trump Sr. and Jr. and all their acolytes act? Exactly like they're acting now. They're calling it a sham. How would the mainstream media act? Well, they'd have legal experts on saying, no, 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 this isn't getting off easy at all. In fact, that's what legal experts are saying right now. Here's Ellie Honig on CNN. Those are misdemeanors. There's virtually no chance that a first-time offender would get sentenced to prison based on misdemeanors. And also the plea following a negotiation to avoid prison on the gun charge is not abnormal at all, given the offense. So wait, I am making the case that it is great for us, the forces of accuracy, to be able to point to a very compelling fact that it was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who cut the deal. But I haven't proved that at all, have I? I just laid out a media atmosphere where we're doing the same things we do if that weren't the case, if David Weiss were Joe Biden appointee. How could I prove that having a stronger rebuttal to Trump is better than just a garden variety rebuttal? Very hard to prove. I can't A-B test it. I can't gauge what the clamor would be like, but I think there would be less clamor. I think, you know, Tom Tillis or one of the Louisiana senators, maybe both, can cite that fact when their constituents get angry at them. I think that, I don't know, Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, some people running for the Republican nomination who are very far down in the polls, but at least some people would say, you know, we have to acknowledge that David Weiss was the prosecutor and a holdover from Trump. I think some of the fervor, which we are seeing, Hunter Biden, sweetheart deal, some would exist in the precincts it exists now, but the level's now at a seven and a half and maybe it would be at a nine and a half. I think 
a truly good journalist like, say, Mike Isakoff might look at this fact and find it compelling. Whereas if it was a sweetheart deal, maybe he'd investigate and write an interesting story about it. I think a solid anchor like Margaret Brennan, Jake Tapper would, if they have a guest on who says, this was a sweetheart deal for Hunter, they will have to say, but wait, the DA was David Weiss, a Trump appointee. I think all those things would be different. I think somehow they would matter. I generally think that better arguments, if they're easy to access and easy to understand, still have some advantages over worse arguments. Not all the time, but enough of the time that I embrace and go with, let's try to commit ourselves to the better arguments. On the show today, we have an interview that will extend to and subsume the spiel. Do you like that in general? By the way, we're rebels. We make our own rules. But I know you're habituated to the spiel. Oftentimes, I blow it out and do a full interview or a one-two interview. I'd like your thoughts. Go to a Reddit page, Pesca me on Twitter, Pesca Gist on Twitter, or the gist at MikePesca.com. So who do we have today? Lauren Chuljin is a New Hampshire public radio reporter who is investigating abuses in the rehab industry. It's unregulated, and in fact, sexual impropriety is rampant. The 13th Step is the name of her podcast. It also describes a phenomenon that acknowledges how rampant sexual impropriety is within the rehab industry. And then Lauren Chuljin became the subjects of harassment, of threats, had a brick through the window, so did her father, so did other reporters. Those responsible have just been caught and just been arraigned, and Lauren Chuljin is doing one of her first interviews since that arraignment has gone down. Lauren Chuljin of The 13th Step, up next. Every reporter wants to get a lot of attention for their work. Lauren Chuljan, a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, did get a lot in a way of the worst kind. But when you really think about it, and as you will learn, in a way, a kind that exemplifies what reporters are going through and does draw more attention to the story that she was covering. She was looking into, in her state of New Hampshire, the rehab industry and abuses among the people who run rehab clinics. Sexual abuses, Me Too abuses, and just runaway unaccountability. It's all contained in a new podcast called The 13th Step. And along the way, in reporting this story, Lauren became a target, which really shows, I think, how deep the rot in some of this industry may just go. Lauren, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you. As I listened to this really well done podcast, I heard it being in a few parts. One was the actual story of your actual main character who you document the abuse that he uh, committed. Then there's a wider lens, which is how is this allowed to happen? Talking about there needs to be a Me Too movement or maybe there's something of a Me Too movement for the uh, drug and substance abuse rehab industry. Then, I don't even know if it's a wider lens, but maybe the aperture shifts a little to what the people in this industry or allegedly, and there have been charges, criminal charges, what they've done to target you to stop this story from getting out. So it must have been a total wild roller coaster ride, but let's start at the nub of the story. You're a reporter, you get a tip. It's about a pretty important 
individual in the state. What were what were your sources alleging right from the beginning? Yeah, so what I had done before I got this wild tip was I was just covering a, a COVID outbreak at one of this guy's facilities. So the guy we're talking about is named Eric Spofford, and the company he ran is called Granite Recovery Centers. And Granite Recovery Centers is like the umbrella organization for a bunch of facilities. And they still are, though he doesn't own it anymore. But at the time and now, they're the biggest provider of substance use disorder treatment that we have in New Hampshire. And you all know, everybody knows, New Hampshire is one of the states that was hardest hit by the opioid crisis. And so we've always been in desperate need of treatment. And so this guy, Eric Spofford, stepped up and provided a lot of that. And so I had found out that there was a COVID outbreak at one of his facilities. We were all doing COVID stories around, you know, early 2020. And this one in particular seemed important since, of course, the need is so great. But after I published the story about the outbreak there, I just got the wildest tip from a woman who was a former clinician who effectively said, like, you think that's bad, like, buckle up. And basically what she alleged was that she and a bunch of other people had quit because of allegations that Eric Spofford, again, the founder and owner of this place, had sexually assaulted a former employee or a current employee who was a former client and that he had been paying off women for years to silence them because more allegations were out there. And that multiple people, like I said, had quit because of this. And she gave me the numbers for some of the people who had quit. And I just was so blown away. But of course, Mike, as you know, like you get tips like this, you kind of, you definitely need to check them out. Yes. And that was December of 2020. So suffice to say, I've been checking these things out for quite some time. So there were, in fact, uh, many, many members of the board and the most powerful people within the country who, there's no disputing this, they had quit. Yeah, so basically, uh, not just like anyone had quit. The COO had quit because of it. Uh, this guy who was uh, had written a book with Eric Spofford, who is the spiritual direct- director of the organization, he had quit. And then I recently, and then I eventually learned that the HR director was fired because of this. And so all along the way, not only am I starting to collect allegations from women who had experienced, who said they had experienced this behavior. I'm also hearing people had talked to people about this behavior, had quit because of it. So there was like a lot happening. And yet, this would never been covered. Right. This had never been a local news story. Just there was nothing. Right. So let's establish for my listeners, okay, the biggest rehab center in New Hampshire. How big is that? I was pretty surprised to learn, pretty big. This guy's pretty rich and pretty powerful. Yeah, don't be knocking on New Hampshire. Small but mighty, okay, my dude? <laughs> I know, okay, so I know. no, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, the thing you have to know is that though Eric started his company in 2008, ended up selling it at the end of 2021, you know, that's a long time to be in power. That's a lot of beds that the state really needed for treatment. But along the way, my understanding through my reporting is that his intent, in intent was to eventually sell it. And he has said online, though I've not seen any documentation that backs this up, but that he sold it for $115 million. Mm-hmm. That's a significant amount of money. And he's started all sorts of other businesses since. He rent, He has a yacht that he rents out. He does real estate transactions. and He's like now he's, an influencer guy from Miami trying correct. to highlight his lavish lifestyle. So. You can learn all about his business advice on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you had, there's an employee A and an employee B and different women. Let's take it in a couple parts. You documented the people that did quit and you also documented many women who alleged abuse. How many, on the record, off the record, women did you find who claim uh, to have been abused by Eric Spofford? 
Yeah, so I found multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, and they started kind of corroborating onto themselves. And the first one that we talk about in the podcast is a woman that we call Elizabeth. And I should say, Mike, the reason why we have this like alphabet of employees and, and pseudonyms is because a lot of these women were really afraid of retaliation from Eric. They were concerned about expensive legal battles that they couldn't afford. And I think yeah. the core of the show and the core of why they're so afraid is because many of these women are in recovery from substance use disorder. Some people want to keep that private, some people don't, but it's it's more that, you know, these are people who were in a vulnerable situation when they were interacting with Eric or were just exiting out of one. And so, you know, there, there's a lot happening there and, and they're building their lives back up. Right. And so they don't have the means to do an expensive legal battle with a person who right. is known to be litigious. So backing up. Elizabeth is the first one we hear about. Elizabeth was a client of one of the facilities of Granite Recovery Centers. She was going there for uh, opioid addiction. And she, the first day out of treatment, started receiving dick pics from Eric on Snapchat. Uh, this is, again, one day out of treatment. She'd been there for 30 days. So right. that means she's only been sober for 30 days. And a thing I really hope people learn from the podcast is, you know, active addiction is not the only vulnerable part of substance use disorder. This is a chronic, difficult disease that is difficult when the substance is put down as well. I mean, right. the, the toll that this has taken on your brain, you, as one of my sources said, you don't even know what color your favorite color is. You don't know how you like your coffee. You're literally putting the pieces of your life back together. And so to receive this message from a powerful person that had given her an opportunity, because I should say he also scholarshiped her to treatment, meaning he paid for her treatment, to open your phone the first day you get it back while you're sitting in a sober house and see a Snapchat of the owner's dick is, yeah. for her, was it sent her into a really complicated mental spiral. Right. Now, she, we should say that the dip, dick pics were sent on Snapchat. Snapchat disappears. You can't take a f uh, screenshot of it. It will tell the person who sent it if you did. And so she, you don't have that um, evidence. But she showed them to people who say, yeah, I saw them right away. So you have corroborating she, evidence. She told a friend. She told yeah. two friends at the time. And this, Mike, you know, you may know, and this has been a big learning experience, I think, for a lot of my sources to talk through, is that there isn't often physical evidence of sexual harassment or sexual assault, right? right? So the best thing a reporter can do the, in the next step, besides searching for any documentation of any piece of the story before or after, is asking, did you tell anyone? And right. Elizabeth, in this case, actually told two people as these Snapchats were coming in. And both of those people had conversations with her. One of them wanted to tell someone else, who then corroborated it to me. And uh, unfortunately, one of those friends has passed away from an, over, um, an, of an overdose. And the other one I actually spoke with on the record, and he was able to corroborate her account. And I should say, Eric, you know, when I initially published this reporting, because a key part of the whole story is that I did publish some of these allegations in March of 2022. And that's when some of the retaliation and reaction that you just heard Mike describe, that's when that happened after that story. Yeah. But so... You know, when I went to Eric with this allegation and the others we'll talk about, he his lawyer threatened to sue us and he denied all allegations of misconduct. And I mean, just said there's no way, no how. But um, like you said, corroboration, very important in these stories. And so, all right, so I have Elizabeth who says that she's received these pictures a day after treatment, okay? Then I hear an allegation from a woman we call employee A. She's not in recovery. She worked at one of the Eric's facilities. And she alleges that she also received very similar Snapchats while working for Eric, explicit Snapchats, dick pictures. And then later she tells me that he sexually assaulted her in his office in the middle of the workday. This also is an allegation I corroborated with people she told at the time and later. Um, Eric again denies that this happened. 
And so, you know, that's what I say. Here we have, you know, two people who don't know each other, who have experienced similar sexual harassment through Snapchat. Then I hear the third allegation. And this is the one uh, that involves people quitting. The woman at the center of this allegation, she did not want to talk to me. She refused to talk to me. But I was able to talk with many, many former employees who had had one-on-one conversations with her that all, you know, it was like all the puzzle pieces just kept fitting together and together. And those are the employees we referred to earlier who quit or were fired because of this. And you have one guy named uh, Piers Kaniuka. Kaniuka, yep. Kaniuka, former director of Spiritual Life, which is important, who goes on the record with you using his name, saying that Eric Spofford is essentially the Harvey Weinstein of the recovery business. Uh, that is a phrase he later recants or wishes he hadn't said to you in an unusual document, which clearly was influenced by Eric. But you have important, this is more information than we literally had about Harvey Weinstein. These were higher up people in the organization um, confirming to you that these things happened. Yeah, this is when I started to really realize that we may be uncovering a pattern here because, of course, hearing allegations directly from women is is really remarkable. But then to hear also that there were multiple people who, you know, uprooted their lives in response to these allegations, then you're really like, well, how deep does this really go? And the thing I want to say about peers, too, that was fascinating, you know, so Piers, like you said, I had been talking to him for a long time. Um, He was one of the people who quit because of hearing these allegations, including directly from a woman we call Employee B, the woman who didn't speak with me. And he and I talked a lot of times. He's also the one who said that a Me Too movement was required in the the addiction industry. And later on, um, I received a letter from Eric's lawyers that was addressed to me and our board at NHPR, that's the station I work at, that effectively said, uh, see below for a statement from peers. And because of this, uh, as they referred to peers, I believe as our star witness or something, um, because of what is written below, you should take the story down. And I was like, what is this? And I scroll down and sure enough, there's a letter from peers. It's like a quick statement. It's on our website if you want to read it. It's very much in the podcast. But he he basically says that he regrets speaking to me, mm-hmm. and and they his lawyer, Eric's lawyers make it out to suggest that this is him recanting, and that means that all of my reporting, you know, now there's a huge hole in it, and none of it makes any sense. But you know, when I reflected on it, you know, Piers isn't one of the women ma- or or a person making a sexual misconduct allegation. You know, that all still stands, and 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 it's not that he's recanting; he just says he regrets speaking to me. But what was fascinating was just about a month maybe or a few weeks before I received this letter, it just so happened that I had talked to Piers after the story came out and asked him just because of how intense all of this was and because as people will hear in the podcast, my sources did face legal retaliation and the day after the story came out, I actually asked Piers, do you regret you know, talking to me for this story? And it's okay if the answer is yes. And he said no. And then it just so happened that the word regret was also in this statement that Eric's lawyer sent to me from Piers. We later learned from Eric's Facebook that Eric says that um, he threatened Piers with a lawsuit and that the statement is what came out of that. Um, So it has been like no reporting experience I have ever had. This one in particular has been a lot. Yeah. 
But the important point and why the podcast is called The 13th Step is because the phrase The 13th Step refers to the idea that after a 12-step program, uh, usually men will use the vulnerability of women in the program to hmm, hit on them, prey on them, uh, try to inappropriately, given how vulnerable everyone is, you know, use their position to for for sex, essentially. It's yeah. well known. It's sort of a, I guess, gallows humor type joke. And it gets to the deeper point, I think, or the more structural point of what you're trying to do, which is to show that this is a really unregulated industry with a lot of problems and a lot of opportunity for people to come in and, you know, look at it and scrutinize it like they did with the Me Too movement. Yeah, I mean, this has like been in the history of AA since the beginning of AA. Mm -hmm. And I think what was important to me was to show that there is, of course, a lot of value to the 12 steps. I mean, they've been, they were for a long time, the only option for many people to find recovery. But it can also be very much exploited. And I think that that's a really important thing to grapple with because at the core of all this and likely why it's been so impossible for all of these women or anybody who's been exploited or 13th step to come forward is because even still now in 2023, we as a society still don't always believe people with substance use disorder. We still don't treat substance use disorder as a disease like any other. And so there's already like the obstacle when you come forward with a sexual misconduct allegation that you won't be believed. Well, here it's even harder. And then there's not that much oversight over the industry because of the way that it came together and because of the stigma that underlies all of it. And so it just became clear and clearer to me as I continued reporting about Eric, but also about the industry, that this is really out there and it's not something that we're talking about enough. We'll be back in a second with more of Lauren to talk about where the case stands now and what happened to her when she was reporting. In the past, you've reported on politicians, often corrupt politicians. Uh, Rod Blagojevich is, went to jail for many years. You've covered politicians in New Hampshire. You've covered powerful people. Had you ever, and we will get to the circumstances in this case, but had you ever been physically threatened, personally intimidated? Had that gone on in your professional life? No. So to lay it out for my listeners, on one day... There were attacks on your parents' house, an old house that you rented, and uh -huh. your editor on this story. Rocks, um, messages scrawled on the wall. That was all on one day within hours of each other. Am I getting that right? Um, yeah, my parents, my old house, and my boss's house all had the C word spray painted in red. Uh, bricks thrown through windows, rocks thrown. Um, yeah, it was um, pretty shocking. And then a month after that, um, it was my house with uh, red spray paint, just the beginning. Just under this, the beginning. Just the beginning, exclamation point. And uh, a brick was thrown through this like big picture window in my living room. Um, and my parents' house got hit again, C word on the garage. Uh, this time though, the brick mixed, it missed the window. I just like to point that out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was pretty brutal. 
not to diminish this, they don't seem like master criminals. One was captured pretty clearly on a uh, on a camera that you had outside your house, but still must have been unbelievably scary. And yeah. for many months, and arrests were made recently as of our talking, but for many months, you did not know who this was. Yeah, you and I are talking at a really wild time, Mike, because for most of my life for the past year and a half, it's been this strange thing where, you know, my immediate reaction was that it must be in response to the reporting, mm -hmm, but I still mm -hmm. didn't know who or how. And, um, you know, Eric ended up putting up out a statement because there was a lot of coverage about the vandalism. And Eric Spofford ended up putting up a statement out a statement saying that, you know, he would never condone this. He had nothing to do with it. However, uh, if it was someone, it might have been somebody who was trying to stand up for him because he's done so much good. Yeah. Um, that's not a direct quote, but that's a summary of, of his statement. And so, but beyond that, there were really, I mean, he basically offered a theory, but beyond that, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I saw a guy in a blue raincoat throwing a brick through my window, but I didn't know who he was. And so um, the FBI was investigating and on Friday, the 16th, I believe, um, the feds charged three men with conspiracy to commit interstate stalking. And that is because your house is in Massachusetts. They came from New Hampshire to do that. So that's why the, there was a federal charge. Correct, correct. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's to say it's been a lot is obviously an understatement. You know, I have to balance these two experiences of I'm the reporter who wrote the story, but I'm also victim one in the yeah. complaint, which is like not an easy read to see yourself as a victim one. Um, but at the same time, you know, for me, like the story was about my sources, right? The stories about the women who came forward and why they didn't. And, and then this all got wrapped up into a very strong example of why people haven't come forward. And I should also say that um, a few months after the vandalism, Eric sued me, two of my colleagues, and three of my sources for defamation. Um, and while a judge ended up throwing that out, he granted our motion to dismiss a few months after, um, it's still a very much an ongoing legal situation. And so it's just been um, a lot. Was there ever a question among either you or other people at New Hampshire Public Radio or anyone with the ability to say we have to stop this investigation? Any uh, any question as to whether you would stop it just out of safety? No. I mean, of course, we um, have a lot of conversations about uh, how the trauma of all this impacts me and um, my colleagues. and But no, I mean, I think um, after reflecting about just the vandalism at my house for a while, uh, my takeaway has always been that uh, it's kind of like the it's kind of like the point of the podcast. It's like it's not just about one person. This isn't just about a brick through my window. Like right. I'm a journalist, and I don't want to be all like you know Pollyanna. But but honestly, like the First Amendment is my right. I mean, my job is protected by the Constitution, and so the idea that someone's going to throw a brick through my window and I'm going to stop doing my story. I mean, that's just not who I am. There is a part in the. Uh story in the podcast where you say, look, my job is, of course, to just report the facts. Yeah. This is sort of to address the idea of now you're part of the story. But then you say, I think in the very next sentence, but these are the facts. Reporting yeah. what happens to me, even if it is to me, is absolutely part of the story and I have to do it. Was there ever a question or moment of hesitation about you being in the story as much as you were? Well, I think for myself, it was kind of like, 
a balance of like, well, how much do I want? Like I am in it now because of the vandalism, but like, I don't really need to be in it. In it, this story is not about me, right? I mean, what happened to me is a, just an example of the world of journalism right now and the experience of being a journalist in America. And so as far as I could just make that point, uh, that was important. But other than that, I, you know, I have a station that has insurance. I have a station that has a lawyer. I am protected by my station, right? I have editors. I have lawyers. I have my sources, some of them who were sued, don't have that. And yes. so that's really, it's not that I was hesitant. It's just that's really present in my mind that it's a podcast about power dynamics. And I also, you know, exist in a power dynamic with the people that I interview. And I, I didn't need to be in it that much, you know? Lauren Trilgen is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Her new podcast, The 13th Step, is filed and in the can, but since the story isn't over, neither is the podcast, new episodes will be dropping so you could follow it along. Thanks, Lauren. Good luck to you with everything. Be safe. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening.